Welcome to the High Praises Church Podcast. We hope you are blessed by today's sermon. Now, here's student pastor Evan Sastar. I want to tell you a story about a young man by the name of John Wesley. So John Wesley grew up in the 1700s in England, and his dad was an ordained priest in the Church of England. And so he lived in a parsonage growing up, and John Wesley had a very large family, lots of brothers and sisters. And back in those days, house fires were very, very common. Like it was just something that could happen. So uh, one night in the middle of the night, their house catches on fire. And so there's all of this commotion and all of this yelling, and there's so many children around. The parents are trying to get everybody. And then the community that's there that starts to get involved. And so they're coming, making sure everybody's out of the house. And in all of this commotion, little John Wesley somehow gets forgotten. Everybody just assumed that he was out of the house. But somehow, in the midst of all of this commotion, with his house on fire, the smell of smoke, everything, he is fast asleep in his bedroom. Like, I'm a heavy sleeper, but I don't know if I could do that. My man is fast asleep in his bed. Through all of that, none of it woke him up. And eventually he wakes up just kind of like on his own, but he's a little dazed and confused and he doesn't know what's happening. And he kind of checks his surroundings and realizes, oh my goodness, my house is on fire and I'm trapped in there. And so thankfully some men in the community got a ladder and put it up towards his window and got little John Wesley out of the house right at the nick of time. I mean, he just got out of there when the house came tumbling down because of the fire. He would have died if they wouldn't have pulled him out at that moment. And as John Wesley reflected on this uh, moment in his life, the story in his life, he says that it was kind of indicative of what God would do with him as a sinner. He called himself a brand plucked from the burning a brand plucked from the fire. And he reflects on it as as how he was a sinner on his way to hell, but God reached down and plucked him out of the fire and saved him. His mother, Susanna, saw it as something that was indicative of how God would use him. It was providential almost, and that God had special plans for his life and a purpose for his life. And that is why God saved him from that. And in fact, he did. John Wesley started this little uh, group within the Church of England nicknamed Methodism, and he led a holy revival throughout the land. And Methodism was so impactful for holiness that many scholars think that John Wesley and his movement prevented England from having something akin to happen in France called the French Revolution. And then John Wesley started Methodism in America, and what's really neat is that's partially the reason we're here today. It's out of the Methodist holiness movement that most American uh, Pentecostals can trace their heritage. So I thought that was really, really neat. But it's interesting that John Wesley somehow, in the midst of all of this craziness, all of this yelling, all of this shouting, all of this burning, all of this smoke, can somehow stay asleep in the fire. And it was only at the last minute by the grace of God that he was pulled out. But it's almost mind-boggling how he could do that. And as he reflects on his own story, how God pulled him out of his sin, it kind of makes me think that there are a lot of people in this world that there is a fire burning around them on their way to hell. And there's all kinds of commotion. 
I'm thinking specifically of people who grow up in church, in Christian families, in Christian homes, maybe married to a Christian spouse, who know Bible stories and Christian songs and read Bible stories to their children at nighttime. And it's like God is screaming at them, come to me. And yet they're fast asleep. If that's you today, I've not come to beat you over the head or beat you up. I've come to plead with you, wake up. Because God has something good for you. He wants to pluck you out of the fire and make you new, make you alive from the inside out, forgive you of your sins, transform you in here and give you life eternal. Wake up and turn to him. And so that's why today we are looking at John chapter 6. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. So if you would, would you go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's word? John chapter 6, verses 25 through 45, and then we're going to read verses 60 through 65. So it says this, And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me. Not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set a seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to him, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform them? that we may see it and believe you. What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to him, uh, most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then complained about him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, <clears throat> Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And then skipping over to verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? 
When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Thank you so much. You can be seated. Isn't God's word good? I could have read that. We just prayed and gone home. Been good enough, but I won't do that. What Jesus is doing here, let me give you some background, not just with John 6, but with the whole gospel of John. What Jesus is doing is he's on the scene and he's trying to reveal who he is, what his mission is, what he's come to do. And Jesus is making it a point to say that he is not some random dude talking on his own authority. He's not a random philosopher that has just popped up and is saying, just believe me, just because, you know, whatever, I'm smart. Jesus is over and over and over again hammering home he is the son of the father, that he has come and the father has sent him, that he is from God speaking on behalf of God. He always talks about, I'm sent from God, I'm sent from the father, I've come from the father, I haven't come from my own. He always talks about doing the will of the father. He says, I haven't come to do my own will, I've come to do the will of the one who sent me. He talks about the works that he does. He says, I haven't come to do my own works. I only do the works that the Father has prepared for me. My Father is working, and I am working also. He talks about doing the, speaking the words of the Father. I don't speak anything on my own. I only speak what I hear from the Father. Jesus is not a random Greek or Jewish philosopher showing up. He is the very Son of God sent from God. In fact, he tells them, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the revelation of God, and he is God. And the way he goes about that is Jesus does all of these teachings and all of these miracles that are these like Old Testament throwbacks. Because he's speaking to a primarily Jewish audience, revealing the Father. He's like, if I just do the same words and the same teachings found in the Old Testament, surely they'll get me. So like John 2, the wedding at Cana, water into wine. Jesus is playing off the Old Testament theme that Israel is the bride of God. And that he's committed to them. That's why when they sin, he always tells them, you've cheated on me. John 3, 4, and 5, he's playing off of these Old Testament themes of water. Right, he tells Nicodemus, you must be born of water and the Spirit. Recalls Joel prophesying that he's going to pour his Spirit out on all flesh. Makes me think of Ezekiel, who says that I'm going to sprinkle you clean with pure water. He's talking to the, the Samaritan woman at the well, and he's telling her that rivers of living water are going to burst within her. This is a prophetic language, I think, from Isaiah. We think about what John talked about last week with the man at the pool of Bethesda. The angel would come down and dip his finger and it would become living water. And he would try and get in it to be healed. Jesus is using all of these, these Old Testament callbacks and Old Testament themes. In fact, in our story today, he's drawing off the story of, of Israel in the wilderness. And they're hungry and they need something to eat. And so God makes bread called manna rain down from heaven to sustain them in the wilderness. And what does he say? I am 
the bread of heaven. He's drawing on all these Old Testament themes. But the problem is, is that the Jewish folks he's talking to just can't see it. They just won't see it. In fact, right over here in, uh, in John chapter 5, he's uh, kind of like getting on them a little bit and, um, and, and kind of letting them know, like, you have the scriptures and yet you don't, uh, you don't believe me. He says here in John chapter 5, 39, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. And down on, in, in 545, he says, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus says pretty clearly, the way I'm going about this is I'm fulfilling all of these pictures and all these events and all of these happenings in the Old Testament. But the problem is, is you think you know the Old Testament. You think you know the Bible. You've grown up with it. But if you really heard God in the scriptures, I would be obvious to you, plain as day, for I'm the same God speaking the same works, doing the same will, speaking the same words. You would recognize who I am. I am God from God. But you're not willing that I may come. And before I dive deep into our text today, can I make kind of a, 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 a pastoral point and sort of a discipleship-oriented point before we really, really dive into John chapter 6? Because I think this is very, very important. Jesus is establishing something, that his mission and his role and his revelation is absolutely dependent on the Old Testament. Without the Old Testament, who Jesus is and what he's doing just simply doesn't make sense. But more than that, the expectation is if you have the Old Testament, you should see me plain as day. I am right there. And they just wouldn't see him. But I think something that I've noticed, and I want to be very gentle here. I'm not hopping on anybody's case. Something that I've observed because I've been through it too. Is Jesus is like the Old Testament is important. We absolutely need it. You can't understand me without it. But I think a lot of Christians open up the Old Testament, go, oh my goodness, what did I just read? And flip back to Romans. You know what I'm saying? What was that? Do not boil a you know, young goat in its mother's milk. Okay, enough of that. Let's, just, let's get back to the cross or something, you know? We open up the Old Testament and we're like, I don't know what to do with this this is strange and it's weird and I don't understand it and you're like I'm not saying it's not the word of God I just don't get it let's go back to the new and we just kind of set the majority of the Bible aside like it doesn't really have anything to do with the New Testament and then I think some some things that we do is as we read God in the Old Testament and I'm not saying you believe this is actually true this is just what it seems you're like he seems kind of mean he is killing people and nations and like the hole open up in the ground and swallowed. Where is the forgiveness? And Jesus is like, you know, kissing babies and eating with sinners and dying and humble. Like, what is going on here? 
You're like, I'm not saying it's not the same God. I just don't see it. Like, what is happening? And so we get super, super intimidated. And so rather than kind of pressing in and saying, let's discover God in this, we just sort of set it to the side and we're content with the very back of our Bibles. But Jesus is telling you, this is not how it works. The expectation is that I am the same God in the Old Testament. And if you knew your Old Testament well, I'd be made obvious to you. At the beginning of the sermon, I got to tell you a a church history figure that I really liked, John Wesley. I love reading his uh, writings. Let me tell you about a, a guy who didn't do so hot. He got condemned as a heretic. His name is Marcion. So way back in the uh, early 100s, this dude named Marcion hit the scene. And, um, you know, he kind of let his intrusive thoughts win a little bit. He started reading the Old Testament and started reading the New Testament and was like, wow, this is like two different gods. So he started preaching literally, these are two different gods. The God of the Old Testament is a wildly different God than the God of the New Testament. And he didn't like him. So the God of the Old Testament is mean and capricious and evil, and we don't want anything to do with him. But this Jesus guy, he's great, worthy of our worship, died on the cross. Let's serve that guy, but let's completely do away with the Old Testament. That is crazy. So Marcion sits down, and he gets the Old Testament, and he takes a big pen, and he crosses through that and just throws that out. But he doesn't stop there. He sits down with the New Testament. And he finds every reference to the Old Testament or Judaism that he can, and he takes his little pen, and he crosses it out, and he produces his new Marcion Bible that makes absolutely no sense to anybody but him. Because all of the references to the Old Testament are gone, and he says, this is your new Bible. Believe in this. Follow this. This is going to get you the way to eternal life. Two different gods. Let's just read this. And when the Christians saw this, they condemned it as a heretic. In fact, Marcion gave like a really big donation to the church. And when they found out about his teaching, they gave it back. We don't want that. No, thank you. Now, if I can just give you something for free, this is just an interesting little church history fact. Marcion actually helped us out a bit. Marcion got condemned in the like 140s. Remember what he did is he sat down with a whole New Testament and crossed through it, which gives us Christians today an extremely early list in the 140s of what the early church believed to be the New Testament. So the heretic actually ended up helping us out. So thank you, Marcion. Wish you wouldn't, you know, anyways. But it was kind of neat. That's for free. You take that home with you, right? But his whole deal is they, they were two different gods. Now, I have not come here today to tell anybody in this room or online that you are a heretic and you're going to hell. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is this, is we've all felt that impulse, that he took way too far, that these just don't seem to line up. And I just don't know what to do with this. And I know it's the same God. And I know it's inspired by the Spirit. And I know it's good for me, but I just don't get how. So I'm gonna just set that aside and I don't need it. But Jesus says that is not an option. And so I wanna encourage you and challenge you today. Be people of the book not just the back of the book, the whole book. And trust that God will reveal himself to you. But let me give you some tips on how you can um, kind of better engage with the Old Testament. I want want to go real quickly here. The first is you can use what's called a lectionary. A lectionary is a, a compilation of readings by pastors and theologians, and it contains an Old Testament, a Psalm, 
a New Testament letter, and a gospel. And it's typically arranged to be preached on a Sunday morning. And the pastors and theologians put this together on purpose because the Old Testament and at least the gospels always have something related to one another. They're always touching on the same themes. In fact, six months out of the year in our middle school ministry, we preach from the lectionary. So we read from the Old Testament and we read from the gospel. And the role of the preacher that day is to build a bridge and to say, just like God did this in the Old Testament, here's how Christ does it in the new. So you can find the revised common lectionary with a quick Google search. And I want to encourage you, just look up the Sunday readings and go through four of them. And, then, you know, it doesn't give you the answer. you got to use some spiritual muscles, do some exercises. But you're playing this fun little game. How does this theme in the Old Testament passage relate to the one of the new? Second thing you can do is you can use resources that actually help you to, um, to read the Bible as one complete story. What we're doing with our high schoolers right now in our fall series is we are walking them through the whole story of the Bible, connecting all the dots and show them how Jesus is important in all of it. I have not read this whole book, so I can only endorse to where this little sticky note goes. But so far, this book has been fantastic. It's called The Drama of Scripture, Finding Our Place in the Biblical Story. And if you want to at least read to there, it's great. You'll get to the Tower of Babel. Things are going terrible, but the book is really good. And so what this does is it helps you connect the dots of how the Bible is a complete and total story all centered around Jesus, all centered around Christ. The third thing you can do is pay attention when you read the New Testament. The New Testament is filled with, with quotations and references and allusions to the Old Testament. If you will simply have eyes to see and ears to hear, the Old Testament is everywhere. So I just want to encourage you today, be people of the whole book. That's how Christ is revealed. All right, let's dive in to the, the full text today here in John chapter 6. What's happened right before verse 25 is um, Jesus has done this amazing miracle. He's out in the wilderness. Thousands of people are around him. It's the Passover. They're very hungry, and all he has is five loaves of bread and two fishes. So he gives thanks for it and miraculously distributes this bread and fish to like 5,000 people and feeds all of them in the wilderness. And then he does this, in crazy, this crazy, incredible water miracle where he walks on water to the other side, and he goes to the other side of, of the water with his disciples. And then the next day, all the people who got fed are looking for Jesus. And so they eventually roll up on land, and they're like, Jesus, we didn't really see you get over here. And it's because he walked on water in the middle of the night, which was really cool. Like, all right, let's do it again. And Jesus is like, look, you're not searching me because you saw a divine sign, because you think I'm God, because you think I can save you and help you. He said, you're following me because of what I can do for your stomachs. You're following me because I fed your stomachs, not because you believe that I can feed your soul. And he tells them, don't labor for the food that perishes, labor for the food that endures to eternal life. So like, okay, what do we do for that? And he says, believe in the one who the Father has sent. And so then they start getting kind of like sketched out. They're like, I don't really know. They don't trust Jesus. In fact, it's hilarious. They say, well, what sign are you going to do to prove you're from God? And I'm like, are you serious? 
Do you not know what just happened? What sign? One scholar thinks that what they were thinking is like, you fed us miraculously for a day. Moses did it for 40 years, so you got to do something bigger than that. And so Jesus looks at them and he says, Moses didn't feed you. No, no, no. My father fed you is what he's getting at. And he says, in fact, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. He gives you the true bread from heaven that gives life to the world. Jesus, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life. But they still don't see it. Jesus tells them, I came down from heaven to give life to the world. They don't see it. In fact, Jesus saying, I came down from heaven to give life to the world, made them so upset that they started murmuring. And so Jesus, uh, you know, he kind of catches on to their murmuring. He kind of sees what's happening. And he says in verse 43, don't murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. Then he quotes the prophet Isaiah. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. You still don't get it. Stop murmuring. Don't do this. Only the ones my Father draws can come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father first draws him. We are born dead in sin, hating God, hating our neighbor, only caring about ourselves. If God never made the first step, if he never enabled you by divine grace, if he never shined his spiritual light on you, you would never even look for God, much less find him. The Father has to come to you because you're dead in trespasses and sin. You are in the darkness. You are done. You don't know where you're going. The Father has to draw you. Sorry, my throat is all messed up. The Father has to draw you. But listen to me, that grace can be resisted. He tells him in John chapter 5, Moses has been speaking to you, but you are not willing to come. And then he quotes Isaiah 54. See, in Isaiah 53, he prophesied about this man named the suffering servant who would come and save the people from their sins. That's Jesus. And Isaiah 54, he prophesies that God is going to rebuild his people. And he's using symbolic language. He's going to rebuild Jerusalem and make its walls beautiful. And he says, and all their children will be taught by God. You've got to understand in Isaiah's day, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In Jesus's day, these people honor me with their lips. Thank you. Give Billy a hand. That was just perfect timing. Honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's exactly what's happening in Jesus' day. They have the law. They have the scriptures. They have got it all, but they just can't see Jesus. And he tells them, only those who have been taught by God can come to me. God's real people aren't physical descendants of Abraham. They're people who believe on his son. And then that's why he goes on to tell them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And they are unspiritual people, and they are freaked out because they're like, this guy is a total cannibal. What is going on? And he goes on to tell them, it's it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh doesn't profit you anything. Anything. My words are spirit and life. 
The problem with these folks is they were so glued to their stomachs that they could never taste what is spiritual. They were so addicted to this world that they could never lift their hearts up to what Jesus is really saying. That the Spirit gives life. That his words are of a spiritual nature and an eternal life-giving nature. They just couldn't see it. The Father had been beckoning and calling them through the scriptures and through their family, through the Old Testament feasts and and festivals for years upon years upon years. And when God stood in front of them, they never saw him. They were glued to their stomachs. But his words are spirit and life. Kind of reminds me of my son, August. Yes, I will milk fatherhood for every sermon illustration I can get. It reminds me of August. And uh, he's once, uh, he's since been delivered, but for the past couple of months, he had a little thing going on where every time that we would lay him on the changing table to change him, he wanted to fight you. It was unbelievable. I don't know if y'all have ever seen like the alligators do the death roll, right? They're just there cold lifeless and then boom 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 just breaking bones like he would be laying on the table all cute and just just going everywhere i mean and it's impossible to hold him down you're grabbing him and then he's screaming and you're trying to get him and when it's a number two diaper the stakes are higher you know what i'm saying like it's urgent you're like like i don't know if you've ever watched cops and they're like stop resisting i will legit be like stop resisting and i'm right and it gets too bad i'm like i need backup stat and elizabeth comes running in She's handcuffing him. I'm reading him his rights. It's a whole deal. Like, it's a whole thing, right? But you just can't get him down. And what he doesn't understand is like, I need to change his diaper. You cannot wear the same one all day. It will be a mess. You will hate it. It will be uncomfortable. But for whatever reason, after all the yelling and all the screaming, all the holding him down, all of it, he keeps on resisting. He doesn't want what's good for him. And I don't know why. I know I'm being goofy, but can I be serious for a moment? There are people who grow up in church, in a Christian household, with Christian parents, hearing Christian devotionals and Christian preaching, surrounded with Christian music, reading Christian little Bible stories to their kids before bed at night, surrounded by it all, and yet they won't wake up. They never quit resisting. God's grace has surrounded them for years upon years upon years, and for whatever reason, they're addicted to this world, and they can't look up. They've tasted and seen that they would rather have their boat or their money or their position or being observed as a good parent or a good mother or a good whatever that they can't taste the bread of life because they only care about here and I don't have a theological category for this Christ died for all he loves all he gives sufficient grace for all he's not holding anything back from anybody but how a Samaritan woman at the well who only has the first five books of the Bible living in sin can repent but a Christian family member in 2022 never turns to Jesus I won't understand it 
an atheist who's never even dealt with God, who hates God, miraculously turns to him. But God's been speaking to you through his word years upon years, and you just love this world. I'm not here to beat you up. I'm no better than you. I'm born in sin just like you are. The Father had to draw me just like he's done you. I've done nothing to earn my salvation. Neither is anybody else. I've not called you to tear you down. I've called to plead with you. Wake up. Awakest thou that sleepest. Arise and Christ will shine his light on thee. My prayer is right now in this moment, the spirit of God would just boom, do like this and lights would come on in your soul. That you were dead, that he would just speak your name like he spoke Lazarus and boom, you would come up out of the grave. My prayer is that you would repent and believe this world is fading. Your boat is going to be gone someday. Your position won't exist anymore. You are dying. Repent and believe there's a God who wants to be your life and he'll save you right now. Turn to Jesus. Wake up. Finally and very quickly, what is it that Jesus wants to be for us? He tells us he's the bread of life. He says, don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the bread that endures to eternal life. Food on this earth goes bad. Manna in the wilderness went bad, but Jesus always reigns and always lives to give you life forever. He says that he is the bread from heaven to give life to the world. And he says, whoever eats of me will never hunger again. If you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. What he's saying is that the things of this world will never satisfy you. You always have to go back. You always have to get more. And in the end, it will run out. But when you taste of Jesus in your soul, you have everything that you need. And he kicks it up a notch. He says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. We've got to think like spiritual people. I eat Jesus and I drink his blood, yes, but how? With the mouth of faith. And he says, when you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, I will raise you up on the last day and I will abide in you and you will abide in me forever. What is going on when we eat this bread of heaven i mystically participate in the lord jesus christ i become bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh for he is the bridegroom and i am the bride he becomes the head and i become a member of his mystical body and i'm joined to him that just as food goes inside of my body and becomes one with me, he abides in me and I abide in him for all of eternity and he gives me life. He becomes everything that I need for all of eternity and promises to raise me up on the last day. And practically, what does this mean? If we take it from the vantage point of the, the manna in the wilderness, the, bre the bread rained down from heaven so that they could survive long enough to make it to the promised land. Jesus is your life in this wilderness called life so that you can endure in faithfulness to the end. When you taste of the bread, 
you live life with a clear conscience that your sins are forgiven because you have the blood of the lamb when you eat the bread of life you are regenerated and made new with new thoughts and a new will and a new desires to, to, to live for him your faith is built up so that when you go through suffering and you go through that divorce and that church member hurts you and your faith is bruised his divine life wells up in you to trust that he's still God and he's still good it's bread that produces hope that though my body's dying with cancer I will rise again it's bread that gives life to my soul that fills me with love that though my ex is being rude though my boss is being sinful though I'm being sinned against I can bless my enemy instead of curse them it's the, the, the food that says to the widow and the widower, widower that my spouse is gone and yet he promises to abide in me and I'll abide in him and he will be everything that I need. He says to the person who can barely put food on the table, if you've got the bread of life, you've got all that you need going through the temptations of this life, that though Satan is shooting his fiery darts, I will give you strength to carry on. The person battling with mental health, grieving over the loss of, another, of a loved one, they can eat of this bread and have strength to walk and not grow weary. Christ has come to be your all in all if you would eat of him by faith today. Come on, give him praise. And finally, he's promised to raise us up on the last day. And if you've lost that Christian spouse, you'll see him again because you'll be raised on the last day. If you're battling sickness, it's going to end. You'll be raised on the last day. If you've gone through suffering and pain, it's okay. You'll be raised on the last day with life eternal. No matter what you are going through, though you die, you shall live. If you eat of the bread of life, he's all you need. So church, would you stand today? And let's just take a moment to respond to the Lord Jesus. If the band wants to come out and play, and let's do what we normally do. Um, I just want to ask everybody in the room to step down to the altar. Come on, go ahead and step out. Come meet with God. If you're that church person, I call you to repent. I'm not going to make you raise a hand. I'm not. While you're down here, in this moment, just you and God, if the Lord has shined a light on your heart, if he's called you out of that grave, repent and believe. And when you believe, you've eaten of the Lord Jesus, the bread of life, his body and blood to give life to you. And for all the rest, would you place your faith in Jesus? I mean, I just mean in an act of worship. Maybe you're going through something right now. Maybe you're going through it and you need some energy. You need some refreshing. You need some food, not just for your body, but for your soul. Call out to God. Say, Lord, may I taste and see that you are good in this situation. God, would you please prepare a table in the presence of my enemies right now? I need you more than ever. And so right now, as the band begins to sing, whatever it is that you need, come on, begin to call out to God and feast on him by faith today. Thanks for listening. 
be sure to join us Sunday mornings in person or online at 10 a.m. For more information or to watch our services online, please visit us at www.highpraises.org or check us out on social media.